You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim, Yerakadosh, I'm Abram Kivilevich. Dr. Juni, I know that uh, Eretz Yisrael is now readying itself, Medina Yisrael is readying itself for Yom Azikaron, which is uh, this evening, uh, what we're recording, followed by Yom Atzmaut. And uh, I have to tell you, honestly, as a, as a boy growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, um, we knew a little bit about what Yom Atzmaut was. We called it, uh, it was a color war day <laughs> in our school. And we, for some reason, we sang songs about Israel and uh, we didn't get much information. Uh, but Yom Karon was actually something that uh, when I was growing up, I was unaware of completely. In fact, even when uh, I, I went to yeshiva, and I knew, of course, about the Neri Yisrael and other yeshivas that uh, that there was a, a a lot of pushback against Yom Atzmaut, that it really shouldn't be a holiday. The idea of Yom Karon sort of was not in our consciousness. It's only later, much later, I guess, once I started teaching in modern Orthodox schools, that I became aware of Yom Karon and the great import that it had, and especially in Eretz Yisrael, that uh, it's, uh, uh, as much as Yom HaShoah is sort of like, uh, they're not exactly sure what to do with it. Yom Karon touches so deep uh, to the Jews of Israel. It's a day that uh, they remember their fallen dead in uh, a, a whole series of wars, starting from, of course, the the War of Independence, followed by the Sinai Campaign, the um, Six Day War, the Yom Kippur War, the Lebanon uh, uh, War, and I think recently Yom Azikaron has even come to include all victims of terror as well, uh, people who have been uh, murdered and, and killed. And, and this great swath of, of people that it's coming to include really just builds up the emotional power of what it means. And you've talked about this with me together on this program, the survivor sense of what it means to be a Ben Eretz Yisrael. And Yom Koron, in, in many ways, it, it, it creates an out, outsurge of emotion that I think is might even be larger than Yom Atzmut. <laughs> Yom Azikaron is it, it brings tears and, and pain and also a tremendous amount of frustration and anger against the Haredim who do not serve. And uh, it, it's, it's a very ugly fact, I believe. Uh, I don't know if you share my feelings on this, that many of the Haredim and, and who hear the siren go off on Yom Azikaron um, just continue um, to learn or to do whatever they're doing, um, not even registering the fact that so many uh, Israeli families feel the terrible pain of the person who has given their life in defense of the country. And when we talk about the, and you've talked about this, our very first program, the rift between the Haredim and the, and the, and, and, and the secular or even religious Zionists, this issue about not serving in the army and not having people in your family that have died for the war and died for the state, died for the country, is such a chasm that that, that it's almost impossible to bridge. And, and you, you can't even get people speaking, I think, Sam, rationally about it. That they, they, the, the anger and hurt and frustration is, is right there on the surface. And as you're now a Ben Eretz Yisrael living there, could you give us some some 
of your perspective of what's going on psychologically uh, in these families that that have children that have died uh, or parents that have died or brothers or sisters that have died and the, the enmity that exists between them and families that haven't and also the flip side, the, the sort of um, coolness of families that haven't had this happen towards those that have. Um, and, and, and again, I know this is a, a much bigger topic than, than specifically Yomasi Koron, but I think it's a good place to start considering the day that is dawning uh, right now. So go ahead, Sam. So I'm going to talk about some basic psychological principles which seem not as intuitive to us as they might be and try to explore this issue from that perspective. Um, there's a, Again, I'm coming from the perspective of the phenomenon of survivor guilt, and I'm building up on that. Uh, I've done quite a bit of work on survivor guilt, uh, particularly around Holocaust victims, but I've also looked at survivor guilt at people who survived the, um, the atom bombing in Japan during, at, towards the end of the Second World War, and also um, from some other major uh, ethnic um, travesties that have occurred at least in the last 200 years. I haven't gone very far back simply because I don't have data. So when um, we are hit by a personal tragedy, there is a need to make sense of it. I'm saying a psychological need, not a, an intellectual need, but a psychological need because it causes a certain amount of disquiet and dissonance. Um, there are many options for finding an explanation psychologically for why personal tragedy occurs. And I'm going to put it into three basic categories. Speaking in this, in this instance about people who have an organized religion or are religious themselves, um, such as Jews, and I'm going to give you three options. One option for those who believe that um, God is micromanaging this world and that God is responsible for what's happening is to see it as an act of God. Um, you can explain it that way, or if you want to be more psychological, you can blame it this way. Now we have somebody to blame. It's God who did it. That's, that's one step. The other step is to blame others, other people. Like it's the fault of some others who either perpetrated this or it's because of them that it happened. Maybe it's a punishment because of their activities. And that, again, everybody knows in the Holocaust, there's all kinds of um, um, dreidlach to explain it that way. And then there's a famous one, which is called guilt. That's where survivor guilt is. You blame yourself. Now, instead of these being problems, these are solutions. That's how people cope with difficulties, especially with um, threats. They cope with it by coming up with an address to blame, and that makes them feel better. You might say, I understand how the first two options make you feel better. How does self-blame make you feel better? And the answer is, this is not for you to understand because this is not logic. This is an emotion. It's formed by the ego. It's not a conscious process. If you want to call it conscious, you can give it the um, uh, logical level of a two-and-a-half-year-old. Zehu. Guilt is, guilt is a way of coming to terms with a problem that occurred. 
Now, you don't have an option of not using one of these. You can't go on living um, in a balanced way. You can go on living and be psychiatrically disturbed. We have no problem. We have, we professionals have no problem with that because we have a name and a diagnosis and a medication. We cope with that very well. But you can go, not go on living and pursuing normal events and normal goals and normal family values or any kind of values if you don't dispense with an interpretation, a psychological way of shelving away this problem. So different theorists in psychology will say that one of these is primary, either blaming yourself, i.e. guilt, or blaming some other source, that one of them is primary and the other one is secondary. In other words, I might say it's natural to be aggressive in response to being victimized, I mean, who you blame, God, other, it doesn't make so much of a difference. And sometimes you can then take it. This Anna Freud is a famous theorist this way. This is, this is the uh, Rashka Bahag's daughter, who's a, a, a famous um, ego theorist. And her idea was that turning against the self is a way of dealing with an inability to blame others, which is natural. Some theorists see, say just the opposite, that essentially the first reaction is guilt, that's Sigmund Freud himself and many others, that their first reaction is guilt, self-blame, that's like programmed in to the human functioning mode, and that people who can't cope with the guilt or people for whom guilt is too much, then go ahead and project the blame onto others. And there you have a choice of, of other people or society or God. That's the way it works. Now, um, so, so let me just stop you for a second, because I, I know you have a, a, a mountain to build here, but just for, for, my, for my understanding. So let's now take our test case. I know this is bigger than someone who has lost a child who was, for example, let's say in the Lebanon campaign, mm-hmm. uh, and the child was hit by a sniper fire or some sort of uh, right. uh, weapon from perhaps a child. <laughs> who knows? We know that the... the sure. The, the fighters, the Palestinians, use children. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so let us assume... We're concerned we use children too. Using an 18-year-old to me is using a child, you know, especially because often we are the ones who either encourage them or discourage them. So in a sense, we're, right. we're, we have sent the child out there either uh, complicitly or... Um, okay, well, uh-huh. well, I think there's... I, I think there is a substantive difference between an 18-year-old and a 10-year-old. But okay, I'll give it to you. That but, but not as far as guilt is concerned. Okay, okay. Well, again, here's, here's our scenario, which happened uh, often. Uh, the, the soldiers went into Lebanon not really knowing the force of the resistance. And children were out there with, with, with quite sophisticated weaponry and mowed down somebody's child. Okay, so the child... Uh, this family has now lost an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old person. Okay, so now the family is trying to process this. So the first feeling you're saying is a blaming of themselves. That's the, that's the, that's the prime place where it starts. They blame that, themselves. That, that, that is one theoretical approach, that the okay. natural idea is to blame yourself. And just to give you a wild example, when a grandmother dies in the family if we don't speak to the little kids right away i'm talking about three-year-olds and four-year-olds we are facing a problem with ptsd that's going to happen and never leave because the kid will blame himself how 
don't go for a logic. They, they blame themselves because they stole a cookie, because they didn't say Shema, because they insulted the grandmother. Who knows? We don't. Uh, the logic is imp- not. All right, not I understand. Up. So there's yes. there's there's a, the parent, whoever feels closest to the child, blames themselves, even though they know it was. A, a, a Palestinian guerrilla tactic that did the job, but they sort of diffuse. That's diffused over the bigger. Somehow it becomes. Why did I agree for the child to go out? Why did I? Why did I raise? Why did I move to Israel in a place where they had to go into war? Or or why did I not daven with Kavana? Or why did I? Who knows what? Okay. Okay, so let, let's assume it's a secular Israeli. It doesn't really make a difference. There's no a, difference at all. Okay. You don't have to be religious to be guilty. Okay. It helps, but you don't have to. Okay, be. so now, we, as you say, that is, is, is sort of damaging to the psyche, and therefore the blame now gets shifted, let's say, by this parents of this, uh, of this person who died for the country, the, 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 died for the war that the country was waging, so now, we in many families, it's either going to shift to the the government, God, um, and incredibly, as I was said in the, in, in, in the preface, not so much in some ways towards the Palestinians or whoever is fighting, but incredibly could even go towards Yenner, the guy who didn't lose a child. Right, that could happen as well. Yeah, but before that. Let's not forget the victim himself or herself. We will blame our son and daughter somehow for <laughs> getting, no, it's not a joke for doing this. Sometimes it can be rationalized. You shouldn't have been such a wild person. You should have stayed. You shouldn't have volunteered. Uh, that's right. also possible, sure. And yeah, and yes, many of them blame the enemy as well. There's a lot of anger towards the enemy. Let's also say these are not mutually exclusive. You can blame both the enemy and your very own daughter for getting involved with this. So the diffusion of self-blame into a whole series of, 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 uh, of people to blame or units to blame is actually a coping mechanism, correct? It actually, mm-hmm. it actually allows, even though they're going to live with gritted teeth against uh, the Haredi who didn't send his kid, but... As you say, it might not. It, it allows them to deal with this hurt and pain, and that is. A, 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 and the, and add the caveat: it then takes some of the heat off themselves. Right, yes. which is which is why they're which is what you're saying. Why the, the, the person is, is is pushed to do that? This is sort of similar, Sam, for those who are listening to these podcasts uh, in sequence. Uh, in our last program, when you spoke about even from uh, from the Oedipal state, that there there there's almost like a psychological, from your perspective, a psychological imperative that will always push the person away from the feeling of of uh, of of you know the guilt or the sense of shame they have of wanting to desire their mother or something into looking for a, a mate that's similar. It's a similar dynamic. They don't want to stay within self-hatred, which is going to sort of consume them. So therefore, it turns into spreading the guilt and possibly hatred around everywhere. Yeah. I, did I capture it all right in terms of... The- yeah, that's the, that's the Mahalach. That's the Mahalach, other than Anna Freud's uh, portion, which reverses it. That's the general Mahalach that's accepted. 
in most of interpersonal psychology, yes. So, yes. so, and I know that it would turn out then that this is really not so much an issue from your perspective of trying to find common ground between the Haredim, let's say, or people who don't serve and the secular Israelis or the, or the religious Israelis who do serve. Speaking about it intellectually or, 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 or trying to make sense and trying to have open forums and hearing people's perspectives, that, that just ain't going to work, is it? I, I talked no, about a no, no. In fact, in fact, we have to make sure it doesn't work. Good if, if that's work, that works. After it's all over, we will blame ourselves, and that's the boogeyman we're trying to avoid most. So we need an other here. Maybe the the enemy could become the other. Hmm, could be, but this is a much better other because the other is really so much part of us. We're blaming oh, okay. ourselves. So, okay, sure. so now I think you've answered. Uh, which, which is my mind has always been very interesting. You know, I said, I didn't know about Yom Azikaron, but I did remember uh, when I was 17 years old and I was uh, deciding to traipse around uh, Eretz Yisrael and just to see what it was like. I was basically in the Mir Yeshiva, but um, I, 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 I took a couple of days off to go and, and go around and see what was going on in the North of the country. And I, I realized that, I was never able to get any car to stop for me. I wasn't, you know, I, there were other young men like myself and young women who were able to hitch rides. This was 1977, but no one would stop. Nobody would stop at all. In fact, there was almost like an anger, and I, you know, when, when they passed us. And they would speed all, up, right? right? Right. There was like, and, and, and there was like, a, a, an, you could almost see the angry visage of the of the driver. And I'm saying, what's going on here? I thought hitching a ride was was so elementary. And the reason was, I found out, was because the assumption was that I was an Israeli yeshiva boy who was not in the army. Here I was, a 17 year old, not in the in, in the green military uniform, and therefore there was this sense: I'm not going to give this kid a ride. There was, there, and 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 that really uh, hammered home for me the 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 anger and 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 i always thought sam and again i don't want to don't this is your show really much more than mine but i always thought that this issue was such a burning one uh, and it, it it was such that that they could live with the fact that the haredim aren't working and aren't paying their taxes and in some ways are sitting in kolo and learning but then when you come to this point, why don't they send their children to possibly die? Why does, why does the pool of possibilities of death only include our families and not theirs? I thought this issue was so hot button that it was the thing that was creating the essential wedge between the Haredi and non-Haredi community. And that's why I thought Nachal Haredi and all these uh, attempts to bring Haredim into uh, national service was the beginning of healing. But from what you're saying to me today, it would seem that people are invested in keeping the anger going, right? They're invested, as long as there's going to be a war and people are going to die, it's good to have a boogeyman that looks like you, rather than the boogeyman that's out there uh, in Lebanon or in Syria or whatever it is that, 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 that isn't so equatable to you. You would actually rather hate the Haredi who didn't send his kid to war and blame him for his death rather than the Palestinian terrorist who 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 is dead set on killing every Jew, right? 
You are an insightful mind, no question, no question. <laughs> but let me say, uh, let's remind everybody, we're talking from the psychological perspective. From the logical or sociological perspective, what you're saying makes perfect sense. And that those efforts are a way to straighten things out to a certain extent between these two factions here. But I have to say, just as an aside, the entire non-masking and non-vaxxing which was a movement on the Haredim for so long now, has reversed any gains on the um, factual um, uh, perspective. So, for instance, um, family members in my car who were driving during this era made sure that I never... I always pick up hitchhikers. That's me. Haredim, I don't care who they are, especially soldiers, of course. And they've always said, don't pick that guy up. As soon as we get into the Beit area, don't pick those guys up. And because... They're the ones who we can blame for spreading COVID because otherwise, who's at fault? Let's say Israelis. This was for a while. Israel had quite a few um, um, horrible periods akin to what's going on in other countries until we managed to get out and to, to get to a relatively safe place now. So, yes, you are right in a logical way. I would say don't dispense with that and dismiss it totally but from a psychological perspective we know it's going to keep happening because we need outsiders but factually speaking or on the at least on the um, superficial uh, ground those efforts are laudatory and i would push for them i don't think they will solve it all but at least blatantly it'll make it less infantile for us to keep looking for somebody to be angry which is not a grown-up way of dealing but that's what our soul is like we have very non-grown-up souls. It's interesting that you use that term soul. And I know that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't tell tales out of, uh, you know, uh, about your family, but I know that one of your children uh, specifically is, is very aligned with the Muslim movement. I know that. Uh, sure. Right. And, and, and. Make that, make that too. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, uh, Tuti and, and Chaim basically are the are, are the Musar people, but yes. but I but I would say as a, a person who, was, who grew up in that world as well, and even from a Kabbalistic perspective, you talk about the soul, the soul's ability to to use the mind, to use Musar, and to use ideology to sort of like overcome this 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 beating heart of of hate and frustration and self enmity. There, there must be a way we could even talk therapy is sort of similar to that. I know you don't believe in it so much, but even talk therapy and Musser, you know, don't you believe the the chances are are, are definitely uh, strengthened? The possibilities are strengthened by using good, instructive Musser talk therapy and and just tactics to to sort of like tame that beast. Or, or you, you don't think so? I don't believe that, but also being a human being and someone who has a soul and values the soul, I think that if you don't keep trying, then we're going to lose our soul. So I think, yes, we definitely um, should be doing this from a human perspective, although I wouldn't give the chances of um, significant breakthroughs any high grades, except for some there are people who manage to do this, but I can count them on one hand or two hands. It's not, we can't expect a normal adjusted person to be able to deal with a huge personal drama, such as Chazal Shalom losing a child and get out of there perfectly by understanding, Hashgacha Pratis, etc. I don't see, I've never seen that happen personally with any of the people I know. But I do know of people 
that I understand they would have worked it out. I can give you some names of some real um, uh, uh, people who worked it out, both in the Jewish religion and I know some also among Hindus for that matter. But those are, those are icons. Those are not us. I don't know. Okay, let me leave you out. It's not me and it's not anybody I know. Okay. Well, right. again, I, you know, I've spoken on, on in this platform and other places about what I have seen. And again, you know, the optics might lie. But we do see the, 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 the incredible equanimity that you see in the Amish community, uh, especially after the nickel, uh, the nickel mines massacre, the type of incredible feeling even towards the murderer himself. So, you know, I, I, I think it has been displayed by our Christian friends. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, even I, I was thinking of the Christians. Yes, I know. And people will definitely officially say, I forgive. Like they'll go to court and say, I forgive i want the court not to hold it against these people but when they wind up on my couch the picture does not look the same at all they will still profess that's what i'm saying officially but they're saying that while they're totally hemorrhaging inside let's move for a second to the other side and whether it's whether it's the right we want to get the answer your mandate that you began right Well, well i was talking let's say the haredi family that did not send to the war, or even someone from the, uh, the Zionist family who also, uh, who was who lucky, or Hashkoch Protis, however you want to say it, didn't lose a child, and they came back. Um, and, and, and they are now here in Yom Hazikaron, where Baruch Hashem, they don't have anyone in their immediate family. What do you think, uh, essentially, they are feeling? Um, and and uh, I know that they are they clearly the ones who have served but did not people didn't die are obviously very solemn and and, and, and contributing to you know to the, the atmosphere of the day um, and I guess what I'm getting to and I know that you have something about this and I'm sort of teasing it from you the person who the survivor the person who whose family did not undergo the tragedy uh, what's really going on for them all right I, I'm. I mean, I'm happy enough being the rascal and puncturing that veneer of sympathy and feeling very good along with the others. And again, here's what literally we're coming to survivor's guilt. All right. So here we have a, a situation that was terrible and I managed to get away without getting hurt. All right. So we have survivor guilt. It, what I mentioned, many Holocaust survivors, many of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors, many survivors of massacres among Native Americans and with Black Snouts coming out more and more, especially during the so-called, I, I call them pogroms, you can call them whatever your riots, anti-Black riots that occurred in the, the major. Um, we have an interest, and I'm sorry, parenthetically, some of the Arab populations that saw themselves as suffering from massacres, you have survivor guilt. And survivor guilt is an odd phenomenon. And again, I have tried speaking to survivors, just at the rational level to try to tease it out. Um, the prime one was my mom, who was quite open psychologically to talk about it. I never got a handle before I got my intense training in, in the psychoanalysis. What is going on? What are you guilty about? And, and basically, so many versions of the guilt all reduced to the fact that it can't be any of them. It doesn't mean anything. So like the Holocaust is complicated, but think of an atom bomb. Think of an atom bomb that destroys you know, 95% of your city and you're not, and you're feeling guilty for the bomb. Like, whoa, what are you doing? Okay, so I want to talk about some theories first and then make it um, 
solid. So, um, I want to talk about, first of all, something called inequity guilt. Okay, the star theoretician over here is somebody called Baumeister, right? Um, some other theorists who have similar ones, although they're coming more from the economy. There's a fellow called Friedman who has something called depletion guilt. Um, there is, I mean, okay, let's start with those two. We'll throw in Modell also. Modell is also a big name. Um, the notion over here is it's a it's an unformalized, um, unthought through, not expressed verbally that there's somehow a finite amount of resources available. I mean, that's straight economics, that's straight Marx, but they extend it to goodness. I remember there was a professor in graduate school who was very obese. And people would talk to him, colleagues would talk to him. I was not such a colleague, but my advisor told me that he schmoozed to him. And he said, what's going on with you, Jack? Why do you do this? He says, look, if I lose weight, somebody's going to have to gain it. So why should I do that to somebody else? Like, what's the sense? All right, that's, that's okay, that's tongue in cheek. But there is a notion. Uh, let's talk about Holocaust survivors. There's no question that some people survived on the backs of victims. I mean, blatantly, they either got them in trouble. I mean, either when there was one hat around, they grabbed the hat and the other guy ended up without a hat. Whatever it is, their name wasn't cool. I know somebody very close to me, they called his name. They knew they had to get 50 people that they decided to um, shoot down that day. They called his name. He didn't get up. They said, okay, you come. So they basically survived on, on the backs of others. There is some notion somehow that somehow the, the calamity that befalls a, a, a group has its ration. And that if I am not part of that ration, the ration, somebody else will be part of it. Not logical at all, but it's there. Um, just to extend it within the fields of economics. Um, somebody, there's a theorist by the name of Hoffman that goes a little bit further and says that there is guilt for achieving. Because when you achieve, somehow the other person doesn't achieve as much, and then you are guilty for that. Not rational at all. Um, the way some people phrase it is that you have dissonance that's set up. Dissonance means why me and not the other person? And that kind of question begs a response of guilt in order to make sense of it. Again, please remember, we're not talking about psychotic people here. We're talking here about something called emotional logic, which roughly approximates logical logic, but it's not. So essentially, um, the main rationale here is that when I do better than someone else, I have to explain it somehow. I can explain it by vilifying the other and saying he or she does not deserve it. Or in a more harsh way, he had it coming if it's something negative that happened, which means that I didn't. Which is the chicken and which is the egg? Again, that's the machlokas of Anna Freud and the rest of um, uh, traditionalists, uh, like pre, pre-Anna psychoanalysts, pre-object relations psychoanalysts. But the question here is, we have a dissonant feeling, we have to explain it, and it goes both ways. So the victim can either blame himself or the loser in the game, the, the parents of those who didn't survive can blame themselves, 
or they can blame somebody else and vice versa. The other who has gotten away without getting hurt has to start thinking why, and then there's some kind of feeling of guilt, which you might say is natural, or blaming the others. So it goes both ways. They are both destined to be losers in this psychological travesty. There are no winners here. Everybody will be either guilty or hating the others. That's what we're left with. And so it's basically just a a mirror image. The dynamics are a mirror image, one of the other. So hence, the bittle, the degradation of the heroes by the Haredim and by the Arabs and vice versa, the hate and the battle going the other way around. The, That's the, the overall formula. Because, because the, the, whether it's a Haredi family or even a Zionist family Yes, of course, because didn't they lose were spared. Any, they so, were spared. So sure. they actually feel a sense, uh, 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 although they can't articulate it, they feel that a sense of blaming, oh, they deserved it in some way. No, let's just, just, I'm sorry for being like a a great school teacher. They feel dissonance. Something doesn't make sense. Why me and not him? And then we have the explanations coming in and it's in the explanations where the venom is contained. Either venom towards yourself, which will give you an ulcer or worse, get you clinically oppressed, or venom towards the other, which makes you just an angry um uncooperative, intolerant person. Yes. So I understood, Sam, from conversations we've had on this topic in, in other forums, that there also was an undercurrent of relief and sort of happiness, not happiness, but, oh, it wasn't me. And and, and therefore, let's, let's in, in, in my example, let's say uh, somebody is coming over uh, to put their arm around uh, the father who's remembering their lost child on Yom Azikaram, who perhaps is from a Zionist family, but didn't lose anyone. So even though the arm is there and, and the caress and the, and the embrace of, of camaraderie, what's going on coursing um, underneath that person in, in that person's mind or soul is a sense of boy, it wasn't me. <laughs> I'm happy that I'm putting my arm around him and he's the one crying and I'm not because someone had to die. And this is the way it worked, like in this economic uh, model. And it was that guy's kid and not mine. And therefore there's almost a sense of, uh, I don't know what you would call it. I don't know if you would call it not happiness, but a sense of satisfaction that the death occurred here and not to me. You would say Rabbi, Rabbi, you are a closet Darwinian. Let's start with that, okay? (laughs) If you go not psychology, way before psychology, but just with the evolutionary understanding of behavior which puts you at the level of a dog or a tiger, there is a, what we talked about, um, the dissonance that comes up or the uh, finite resources at the evolutionary level, is re- it's real, right? You have only a certain amount of animals to kill that are available to the, to the predators. And the point is, yes, I am glad that you got it because otherwise I would have gotten it and I would have been the prey. Now, this is not expressed consciously. Anybody who expresses this consciously is a real psychopath. But people who don't express it, I'll tell you something even just self-revelatory. People who go into psychoanalysis as practitioners are, in a sublimated way, gloating. (laughs) All day, I am admitting patients. I'm dealing with them. I'm medicating them. And it ain't me. 
I keep saying to myself, it ain't me, it's him, it's them. Maybe I went to this business because I'm furious at some people who got on my nerves. But basically, yes, you have to be, you cannot possibly be a, uh, an evolutionary human exemplar without being happy that you made it out of the competition. The people who give up their lives on serious Nefesh are either psychotic or they are those few Muslim people who manage to take other people's needs and put them in a level equal to their own, or in some cases, beyond their own. Beyond so, I believe that in the unconscious, as primates, not as human beings, but as primates, we are glad. And when we are glad, obviously our human side, our neshama, our soul will kick in and make us feel darn guilty. And then one way of dealing with that is blaming the other, saying, and he had it coming. That's going to be the little epithet at the end. So, but yes, it's not a nice picture. It's not a beautiful picture. Yeah. It's not something that a Muslim would like to hear. Let me now just expand this or extend, if not expand, but at least to, to two things which are really part of our zeitgeist. Well, one is definitely in the zeitgeist, and the other is something which has been hallowed in our tradition. The first is the evening news, the, the, the hourly news, we are, what do we, what drives the news cycle? Death, destruction, right? Hurricanes, um, typhoons, uh, a person getting shot at a traffic stop. Um, uh, from what you're saying, one of the reasons is, is not just to, to view it and, and say, I need to understand the world, but it's actually making, by seeing the images and, 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 and keying your knowledge about people that are that have been shot or killed or have, who, who are now homeless, you're saying, boy, happy it's not me. I feel good about, about that, right? I want to add, especially if you are in your comfortable home, warm, covered by a nice blanket and sipping latte. Yeah. That is the ultimate background for appreciating the news. Right. And, and, you know, Dennis Prager, who is a pariah in many people's minds, uh, a number of years ago, my indeed, wife... Indeed. Let me just say indeed. Now continue. Yeah, yeah. So Dennis Prager had a program called, I think it was the Feel Good Hour or the Happy Show or Let's Hear Good News. And he knew he was fighting against the grain because nobody's interested in listening to all these positive Feel Good Reader's Digest stories. They don't, they don't strike a chord. Now, the, according to what you're saying, part of it is because they don't necess- those don't make you feel, oh, at least it's not happening to me. Those sure. actually, those actually make you jealous and saying, you know, I wish I had such feel good things happening. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. The other thing is about something that's hallowed in our tradition, and, um, and 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 as a rabbi, I've had to engage in it. In fact, uh, many rabbis, including Rabbi Pupko, I, who I referenced earlier, has said this is one of the key things rabbis are taught is how to go to the base ovel, how to go to a house of shiva, how to comfort someone who is mourning. And we've been talking about Yom Hazikaron. And, 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 and of course, many of us see, uh, even in COVID, uh, I told my wife, we're not going to people's houses, but I have to go here. Or I'm going to definitely have to make time to do a Zoom Shiva call, sometimes even personally. According to what you're saying, most of the people who are coming to be Menachem Ovil and to, 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 to show comfort, like I mentioned before, based on what we're saying, there's also a feeling of, well, 
at least I'm not sitting Shiva, right? You know, when I'm sitting there and I see this person with his ripped clothes and, 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 and breaking down, part of me is, is feeling it didn't happen to me. I survived. I, it, I, the death didn't visit me. And in that sense, it's, it's, you can understand why so many Shiva calls are so awkward for people because they're fighting a, 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 an inherent sense of sort of happiness. <laughs> this bad well, thing didn't happen to me. Let's call it relief. Let's call it relief just to be um, um, kind to these people, but also realize this is not something that they arrived at logically. This is something that automatically gets there. It's almost like a, a, a reflex to blink when something comes at you. There's a reflex, almost, a, an unconscious reflex to see, okay, at least I'm okay. Let me take care of this. I'm fine now. Okay, now I can tend to other people's uh, issues. But let's just see it. Realize that people are ambivalent. I am not saying that people are not genuinely upset at other people's miseries. But there is part of the person that's glad, and if I want to be gauche, a part of the person that's celebrating the fact that they have gotten away with it. And if you want to become Darwinian, they're also celebrating that the other guy got hit. But that's already Darwinian. That's one step below what I'm saying. I think it it also explains uh, something which I... Uh, until this conversation, always tried to uh, paint in in positive colors, which was many times people never visit your house until you're sitting shiva. You know, you have people again pre-COVID. There's people that you knew in some you know uh, sort of acquaintance sort of fashion, but they never knocked on your door and they didn't even come when you made a kiddush or some sort of simcha. But incredibly, they were there for you uh, when you when you lost someone. And up until now, I would have said, you know, it's true, the person didn't show such great friendship, but they're there at the Shiva, they were there to show up, they were there. Uh, It might be that it isn't just some sort of stirring of bigger feelings, it might actually be a way to, to unconsciously satisfy a sense of, hey, going here reminds me of how lucky and great I, my situation. Sure, or going to see a fire. We all know about the phenomenon, right? The fire is there. You have to watch it. Why are you watching? Sure. Yeah, well, there, there is pyro, there are actual pyrotechnics that go on there that make it something that's unique. Oh. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's you're, you're, you're telling me, Sam, that given the choice of watching a 10 alarm super blaze or a controlled fireworks display that yeah. the fireworks you'd go to the 10 10 o'clock 10 alarm no, blaze. No, no comparison no comparison in terms of thrills wow come on watching a bang bang western versus watching some acrobats please no comparison yeah. okay. so which which you know, it's 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 unfortunate, really. Um, you know, your your perspective in that way because I have an unfortunate perspective. It's unfor- it. it's it's unfortunate for me to hear this and absorb it because now you know, <laughs> here I was saying, boy, you know, that guy never came to my house until my sister died, and uh, you know, he's not he's a pretty decent fellow. Um, now, from speaking to you, I'm realizing. Hmm, you know, I, 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 I understand, by the way, for, you know, there's another program I do with a person you connected me with, with, of course, is Yitzchak uh, um, uh, Kolakowski. And if you ever listen to the programs, we spend the last 
couple of minutes of our show talking about uh, old movies. There is a famous old movie, uh, not so old, 1960, called um, Little Shop of Horrors. You might remember the musical that was built mm-hmm. in the film. And there's a character called Mrs. Shiva, who uh, Roger Corman somehow knew was a, a Jewish woman who showed goes to all she shows up everywhere. She's not even. I remember you told me that the Bnei Yeshiva used to go to weddings in order to be able to get a, 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 a free meal every night if they lived close enough to the wedding hall. Just they just have to get just get their suit nice enough. But there's also this Miss Shiva phenomenon of people who just love going to uh, funerals where they're not invited or showing up at base of it. And who are you? I don't know. But somehow it's feeding this, this, as you say, this Darwinian need. And I think there are people out there that sort of like the antenna go up. And, and you've, you, I think you've explained pretty accurately why and, and why it's not there under normal circumstances, the, why we see these Mrs. Shivas or just enjoy things. All right. Well, my friends, I hope that uh, in, 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 in a more positive uh, perspective, I hope that uh, you do spend some time, if you're listening to this before Yom Azikaran, we'll try to put it up here beforehand, uh, that you do take measure of the incredible miracle, really, of uh, the survival of the state of Israel and, and, and what it has been through. Uh, with and whether you know someone who has suffered personally from it or not, I think it is important for both of us, Sam, you living in Eretz Yisrael, I who have my children in Eretz Yisrael, uh, to recognize uh, that those sacrifices and, 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 and things that have occurred in order to keep the country safe are, are really acts that need to be lauded as, as, as genuinely heroic. And take some time on Yom Azikaron, or even if you're listening to this afterwards, uh, to just uh, educate yourself as to what really had occurred and, and how many people uh, fight and care uh, to keep that little piece of uh, real estate uh, safe and secure as Mitashem, of course, to end with a certain piety as the place that we'll all eventually return to in, uh, in a positive light. Thanks again, Sam, uh, and uh, we'll catch you maybe next week. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.